Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Sean. For those of you who don't know me, and I'm one of the pastors of Trinity Cambridge Church, and it's my joy and privilege to preach God's word to you this morning. Uh, we are um, deviating from our normal sermon series in the book of Exodus today, so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John, John chapter 16, verses 4 to 15. I'll explain why we're here uh, after I read the passage. Uh, Let me pray for the reading and preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, help us by your Holy Spirit so that having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us. What is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe? The resurrection power that you impart to us in your spirit. Make the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit more real to us and help us to relate to him rightly and depend on him in our life and ministry So to that end, speak to us from your word in John. Humble us to receive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word from John 16, 4 to 15. I will start where it says, I did not say. John 16, verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is God's holy and authoritative word. You may be seated. Some church traditions observe what is called a liturgical calendar, uh, which includes various church holidays. We don't observe all of those uh, because the Bible doesn't require it. Uh, Romans 14.5 says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This is ultimately a matter of indifference that can be reserved for each believer's conscience. We have, however, observed some of the major church holidays in the past, like Advent and Christmas, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday, Uh, not because we have to, but because they help us to remember important aspects of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And today is what is known as Pentecost Sunday in the church calendar, which commemorates the descent of the Holy Spirit on God's people at Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost is another name for the Jewish Feast of Weeks, which you guys should be familiar with now because we've been in Exodus, uh, when people brought offerings and sacrifices to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. And uh, this occurred seven weeks after the Sabbath of the Passover feast. That's why it's called the Feast of Weeks because that that happens seven weeks after or on the 50th day. Uh, And that's why in Greek it's also called Pentecost, which refers to 50 
It's on the 50th day. And for our purposes, Pentecost Sunday is the seventh Sunday after Easter. So this year for Pentecost Sunday, uh, we decided to take a break from our sermon series in Exodus so that we can get to know the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, better. And I think this is important for a number of reasons. On the one hand, our church is theologically reformed. That means that we believe that the, the major doctrinal formulations and clarifications of the Protestant Reformation are biblical and helpful, such as believing in Scripture alone as our final authority for life and doctrine, that Christ alone saves us by, the, by, by his death and resurrection, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by our own good works, by believing in what Jesus has done and not by what we do. And we believe that God saves in this way and works in this way all to the glory of God alone, that that's why he works in this way, so that he might receive all the glory. So because of this theological emphasis, we sometimes attract Christians who grew up in churches where the Holy Spirit was, as Francis Chan puts it in his book, the forgotten God, where there was little teaching on the power of the Holy Spirit so that they are skeptical, maybe even a bit suspicious of any talk of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, we, our church is also continuationist, meaning that we believe that all the spiritual gifts described in the Bible, including miraculous healings, tongues, and prophecy, etc., continue to this day. Because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all of God's people as a sign of the new covenant age that we are in. And so we're supposed to eagerly desire those spiritual gifts, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14.1. And there are some Christians who believe that these gifts have ceased after uh, the age of the apostles, which is why they're called cessationists. But our church is continuationist. We believe these gifts continue. And for that reason, we also attract, on the other hand, Christians who grew up in churches where the gifts of the Holy Spirit were heavily emphasized, sometimes in a way that is disproportionate to Scripture's own emphases. So they are credulous, maybe too trusting of anything that invokes the Holy Spirit. So in light of these dual realities, uh, I think it will serve our church well to listen to what God has to say about himself, about the Holy Spirit uh, in his word in John 16, 4 to 15. This is one of the most important passages about the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus himself taught his disciples during his farewell discourse before he was saying goodbye to them, before his death, resurrection, and ascension. And the main point of Jesus' teaching here is this, that God sends his Holy Spirit to convict the world and guide his people into the truth of Christ. That's the main point of this passage. So first, is uh, I'm going to talk about convicting the world, how the Holy Spirit does that, and then guiding the church, and then glorifying the Christ. Second and third point, I'm really going to cover it in one go together. Uh, we call this section of John 14 to 16 the, the farewell discourse because it's the last thing that Jesus leaves his disciples with. He, and uh, it says in verse 4 that Jesus hadn't shared these things with his disciples yet because it was not necessary because he was still with them. Uh, however, he's now going to leave. Uh, he says, I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So if you... It's a little harder for us to know because we're kind of not in John right now in our, as our series. But if you're with us when, you're, when we're in the Gospel of John, you might notice that this is a curious thing for Jesus to say. Because just two chapters earlier, or a few chapters earlier in John 13, Peter asked Jesus exactly this question. Where are you going? <laughs> so why is Jesus saying, none of you asks me, where are you going? Uh, and uh, it, this is not a contradiction, because if you look at the context of John 13, even though Peter asks formally, where are you going? In substance, his question is not really about where Jesus is going and what it meant for his followers. We can tell that because uh, Jesus, the, the way Jesus answers Peter's question in 1336, Jesus does not tell Peter where he is going. He simply tells him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. And then Peter responds, well, Lord, then why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life for you. And then Jesus tells him, oh, will you really lay down my, your life for me? In fact, you're going to deny me three times. 
So Peter and the rest of the apostles, we know from the Gospels, did not yet understand the true nature of Jesus' kingship. As the messianic king that Jesus would go to the cross, die for our sins, and be raised from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father. They didn't understand this. And we know that because John told us in chapter 12, 16, that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remember that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So Jesus' disciples are not expecting Jesus to go and suffer and die and then to be raised from the dead and to ascend to the heavens. It was only after all of that happened that they realized that that's what Jesus had been talking to them about all along. So at this point in chapter 16, Peter's not really trying to figure out where Jesus is going and trying to learn what that means for him and the other followers of Jesus. He's simply protesting Jesus' imminent departure, insisting that he go with him. Where are you going? What do you mean you're going? You're supposed to be our king. You're supposed to lead us in storming Jerusalem and and overthrowing the oppressors, the Romans, and bringing about the kingdom of God and establishing the reign of of God on earth. That's what you're supposed to do. So what do you mean you're going? You've got to take me with you. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. That's what Peter is telling Jesus. But no one's actually asking him, where are you going? What does that mean? Where are you going? What does that mean for us? So Jesus asks the question, that they really should be asking. And so Jesus says in verses 6 to 7, But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus' disciples are sad that he's about to leave them, even though they don't fully understand what that means. And so Jesus comforts them. And throughout the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus is emphasizing something very important with eternal significance, he prefaces it by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, and here he says, I tell you the truth. Listen to me. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And by helper, we know from John, and later in verse 13, that Jesus is referring to the spirit of truth which he also made explicit in John 14. It's only after Jesus dies and then he is raised from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father that he sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends and is poured out upon, upon God's people. Uh, this is not because of some you know, metaphysical reality that prevents the second person of the Trinity from being in the same place as the third person of the Trinity. It's, it's an eschatological reason because the Holy Spirit represents the new covenant age, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the end times that comes when Jesus finishes his atoning work, redemptive work, and goes to the Father. And the Holy Spirit is poured out on his people. Uh, And because the Holy Spirit is a gift from God to us that Jesus secures for us with his death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, the first thing to note about the Holy Spirit here is that he is a person. He's not a thing or some nebulous force. The word helper is a personal term. There's another word for things that help us. We call them tools. But when a person helps us, we call them tools persons help us, we call them helpers. I have some friends uh, who think, well, they thought this when we were growing up, hopefully they don't think this anymore, but I have some friends who, who used to think that the Star Wars franchise is spiritually and theologically profound. And, uh, and one of the things that, that they always point out is, is the force, you know, which is this mysterious energy that binds life and the galaxies together and, and that, that a special class of warriors, the Jedis and the Siths, are able to harness. Sorry if this is not, your, uh, not making sense to you. The, the, they say things to each other like, may the force be with you. Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Luke Skywalker, the force will be with you, right? which I'm sure George Lucas stole directly from the Gospel of John. Um, in the more recent Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Maz Kanata says to, the Rey, to Rey, the main protagonist, close your eyes, feel it, the light, it has always been there, it will guide you. Uh, and perhaps most famously in A New Hope, Darth Vader says to an Imperial Navy Admiral who scoffs at the idea of the Force, I find your lack of faith disturbing, right? It's very, sounds very uh, 
biblical. Now, the parallels are obviously there because George Lucas stole the references, but it's actually very unhelpful to think of the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force. He's a person. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You can grieve the Holy Spirit, right? In Acts 5.3, Peter rebukes Ananias for lying to the Spirit. You can lie to the Holy Spirit. We don't talk like that about impersonal things. He's a person. The Holy Spirit is our counselor and comforter and advocate, our helper, and we need to relate to him as such. He's not a light that we switch on and off or a tool that we use or a genie that we conjure up by using the correct formula or technical words or phrases or by getting ourselves into the right frame of mind by some technique of faith. The Spirit is a person with a will. In fact, He is God with a sovereign will. So when speaking of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that all the gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The spiritual gifts are apportioned by the Spirit as he wills according to his sovereign will. That's why all we can do is earnestly desire the spiritual gifts and pray for them. As it says in 1 Corinthians 14. Spiritual gifts are gifts. It's not a wage that we, or a reward that we can earn. It's not a technique that you perfect. You perfect. Instead of learning to use the Spirit as a thing or a force, we need to learn to keep in step with the Spirit as a person. Walk with Him. And the Spirit of God is such a wonderful helper that Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We really need to let the weight of this sink in. How many times have we thought to ourselves, Oh, if only I could have been alive at the time of Jesus. It would be so much easier to follow him and serve him. That's baloney. There were myriads of people who were alive during Jesus' time and never came to saving faith. In fact, thousands of them sought to have Jesus killed. They're the ones who should be saying, oh, if only I could have lived at the time of the Holy Spirit. I think too many Christians live as if they'd rather return the Holy Spirit to get Jesus back in the flesh on earth. They act like the Holy Spirit basically doesn't make any difference. Like we lost an MVP caliber player in exchange for a bench warmer. Well, we can't even see the Holy Spirit, but but Jesus, I mean, when he was on earth, he did miracles. Wouldn't you have liked to see that? Wouldn't you have liked to hear preaching from the mouth of the incarnate God himself? But Jesus himself says that it is to our advantage that he goes away so that we could have the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, as Romans 8, 9 describes him. It's better for us to have Christ in the Spirit than to have Christ in the flesh. Jesus said earlier in John 14, 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Notice the parallel phrase there, going to the Father. That parallels what Jesus says here in 16.5, I am going to him who sent me. The followers of Jesus will do even greater works after Jesus' departure. Why? Precisely because Jesus is going back to the Father and he will send the Holy Spirit to us. In the context of John 14 and its parallel in John 10, the works that refer to the good works that Jesus does that authenticate his good news. The works that authenticate his words, his witness. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what's the result of that? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. This is the greater works that we do. 
After healing an invalid of 38 years in John 5.20, Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. What is the greater work? He says later in that same, same chapter, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's the greater works. By proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can make those who are dead in their trespasses and sins alive again. That's the greater work. And we can only do that work because the Holy Spirit has come. So how exactly does the Holy Spirit help us to do this greater work? In what sense is he our helper? You may have heard the term paraclete before. That's the Greek word that is used here to refer to the Holy Spirit and it's translated helper. The basic meaning of the term is someone who is called alongside, to come alongside to help you. Uh, it's, uh, it's an helper or an advocate on someone else's behalf. So John is the only biblical writer, New Testament writer, who uses this term. And in the Gospel of John, it exclusively refers to the Holy Spirit. But John also uses the word in his letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where he refers to Jesus as the paraclete. And that context is helpful for us for understanding what the word means. He says in 1 John 2, 1, uh, he used the word this way, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's describing Jesus, that role of helper or advocate, as Jesus basically defending us as our defense attorney in the heavenly court. He reminds us, reminds the Father, presents the Father his atoning work that this child of mine, this son, this daughter who has sinned, his sins are paid for, that he belongs to me and that he is your adopted child. That's his advocacy, him helping us, coming alongside to help us. Jesus is our legal counsel in that sense. But in this case, in John 16, when the object is the sinful world, the Holy Spirit comes alongside us to help us and advocates for us as we bear witness to Jesus. And as we expose the darkness of the world, this is confirmed by verses 8 to 11. And when the helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. The world convict occurs 18 times throughout the New Testament. It's, it always has something to do with exposing someone's sin and summoning them to repentance. Ephesians 5, 11 to 14 offers a helpful parallel. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It's the same word. Convict them, expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Once again, in the context of the greater work that we do in shining the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit comes alongside us to help us to expose the darkness. He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment in the same way that Jesus exposed the, the work, the evil works of the world, as it says in John 7, 7. But this time, the Holy Spirit is not limited by time and space as the incarnate Son was. Jesus' ministry on earth was largely limited to Galilee and the surrounding regions, but in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is proclaimed to the end of the earth among not only the Jews, but among all the nations. It's a greater work. The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in Jesus. If they believed in Jesus, they would have received forgiveness for sin and eternal life, but because they do not believe in him, they must be convicted of sin and brought to repentance. The Holy Spirit also convicts the world concerning righteousness. That's a little interesting, right? Why in the world does the world need to be convicted of righteousness? Why does it not say unrighteousness? In the days of Judah, when God's people were putting on sackcloth and fasting in an outward show of piety and religiosity, all the while oppressing 
their neighbors and depriving the poor of justice, as it says in Isaiah 58. The prophet Isaiah said of those people, God's people in Isaiah 64, 6, their righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like a menstrual cloth stained with blood. The word righteousness is being used in a, in a similarly negative sense here. The Holy Spirit will expose the world's righteousness or the lack thereof during the days of Jesus. The Pharisees were scrupulously observing the minutia of the law while neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, as Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23. They were clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. And the world is still the same today. On the outside, the world looks good and put together. On the outside, there is great concern about righteousness and justice. But when it comes to people who fall outside of the pale of worldly orthodoxy, there's neither fairness nor mercy. The world's righteousness is like a polluted garment. So the Holy Spirit helps us in exposing that by proclaiming Jesus, the light of the world. The Spirit's help is necessary because Jesus is going to the Father. And so if Jesus is the one who reveals the Father, what do we do when he has gone? The answer is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus will be with us to help us. The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. Jesus said earlier in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That's a reference to Satan, who is the pretender, the illegitimate ruler. The true king, Jesus, has come, and he ascends his throne by being lifted up on the cross to die for the sins of people, and, and then he rises from the dead and is ascended to the right hand of the Father. And when the rightful king ascends the throne, and assumes his rule, all usurpers and tyrants must be cast out. So Satan, the prince, the power of the air, the ruler of this world, is rebuked and cast out. Earlier in John 7, 24, Jesus rebuked the people for misjudging him and rejecting him, saying, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here, Jesus is turning the table on them. The Holy Spirit will expose the world's judgment their allegiance to Satan and rejection of Christ the King. The Holy Spirit exposes that, reveals that, that the ruler of this world is himself judged and that therefore by extension, they themselves stand under God's judgment and therefore must repent. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of their wrong judgment and reveals that they themselves are under judgment. And we see the powerful effect of this very work of the Holy Spirit that we've been talking about in Acts chapter 2, when Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit is fulfilled and he comes upon the believers in Jerusalem at Pentecost. After the Holy Spirit falls upon them, Peter stands up to preach. And I want you guys to note well that this is not the first time Peter has preached. Jesus sent the 12 apostles to preach during his earthly ministry in Mark 3.14. In Luke 9, 6, it says that they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They were proclaiming the gospel and doing it with power. They were healing people who were sick. Peter has experience with this. He's done this before. But never to the effect of what we're going to see in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches a pretty ordinary, straightforward sermon. No offense to him. He, he tells them that the manifestation of the Spirit in tongues of fire and the speaking of other tongues is a fulfillment of the prophecy of, in Joel 2, 28-32, that in the last days God will pour out his Holy Spirit on all of his people. And then he tells them that Jesus fulfilled David's prophecy in Psalm 16, 8-11, that the Messianic King will be raised from the dead. And then he exposes the world of their sin and righteousness and judgment in the power of the Spirit, telling them that God has made them, made, made him, sorry, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you cross crucified. So he's telling them bluntly, you crucified this Jesus, your sin put him on the cross, and here your sin, righteousness, and judgment lie exposed before the light of Christ. Because Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the Christ, the King. It's a straightforward sermon based on a few Old Testament texts. But look at the response in Acts 2.37. 
Now then they heard this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It continues in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter, what's your secret? Should we analyze the exegesis and structure of Peter's sermon so we could learn his method? Should we comment on his excellent biblical theology and exalted Christology? No, do you really think after the sermon, 3,000 people are saved and then Peter sits down and he, he says to himself, wow, I'm actually pretty good at this. No, there's no secret. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm the last person to belittle sound doctrine or faithful preaching. I can be quite a stickler with both of those things. But apart from the Holy Spirit who works in and through the preaching of God's word, all preaching is futile. Before Pentecost, that crowd could have laughed Peter off from the pulpit But because of the Holy Spirit's convicting work, they are cut to the heart and they repent. Well, you might wonder then, well, why doesn't that happen when Sean preaches? I've asked that question many times. It'd be amazing if every time I preached, people lined up and said, can you just tell me what to do? (laughs) What do I need to do to be saved? I would love that. Holy Spirit chooses to work how he wants to, and, and I think probably with me, there's too much of me in my sermons, too little dependence on the Holy Spirit. I repent of that every single week. Tell God, God, you worked powerfully and mighty at this time in history with this preacher in this place. Why not now? Why not here? Why not move powerfully again? I pray that every single week. I repent of it every single week. That should shape the way we live and serve as God's people. Do we live with an intentional and conscious and continual dependence on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? Do we live like that, brothers and sisters? Is the Holy Spirit really real to you? In your thinking and in your living, is the Holy Spirit like a powerful wind that propels the sailboat? Or is he out of sight and out of mind? And you're getting blistered all over your hands because you're rowing so hard in your own strength. I rowed and coxed on the crew team college, so I know what intense labor it is to row. And even the fastest crew, an Olympic level crew, can only sprint at 14 miles per hour. These are like giants, really tall. Legs are like this big. They go as fast as they can for 2,000 meters. They can only reach 14 miles per hour. But David Foreman can tell you that an average racing sailboat travels at 17 miles per hour. You don't have to do much for that. You just rely on the wind. I think too many Christians and pastors and churches live and labor like a crew shell 
and not enough like a sailboat. We must not become self-sufficient. We must not institutionalize the Holy Spirit thinking that if we master some preaching technique or dial up the lights or the volume and the performance quality to this perfect level or figure out some right programs and processes, then we can manipulate the Holy Spirit and guarantee spiritual success. Even if we do everything right as a church, if there's no warmth of humility and love which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, if there's no empowering fire of the Holy Spirit in our zeal for Christ's glory and in bearing witness to Jesus and evangelizing to unbelievers, then we need to repent as a church. That kind of complacency devoid of the Holy Spirit's power creates only lukewarm Christians and ineffectual churches. So, as I'm doing each week, will you join me in relinquishing ourselves, surrendering more of ourselves each day, each week, so that we can be a more needy church, more dependent church, more prayerful church? Can we be a church that says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you, your name give glory? for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness? Can we be an ordinary church that serves an extraordinary God that leaves people remarking not about how gifted we are or about how well we do some things, but how glorious and gracious God is to be patient with such people? In this way, the Holy Spirit helps us by convicting the world. But he also helps us by guiding us into all the truth. It says in verse 13, it's important to note here that Jesus is first addressing the 12 disciples, the apostles of Christ that he's about to leave. That's the first audience. In John 14, 26, he said specifically to them that the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So there's a unique and special way in which the Holy Spirit helps the apostles because they are eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection because as Ephesians 2, 20 says, that they are the foundation of the church of Christ. The Holy Spirit helps them to remember everything Jesus taught them and everything that Jesus did so that they could write the scriptures under the inspiration of God's, God's Spirit and lay the once and for all foundation upon which all subsequent generations of Christians build on top of. So there is a unique way in which Spirit, is helped, Spirit helps the apostles and that's what Jesus is talking about here. But by extension, because we are believers who are building on top of that foundation, apostolic foundation, it's the Holy Spirit who also helps us to come to the knowledge of the truth and leads us into all truth. And what exactly is the truth that is in view here? Jesus told us in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth that the Holy Spirit leads us into. The disciples cannot yet grasp or bear all the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. But after his death and resurrection and ascension, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them at Pentecost, they will be able finally to fully understand the significance of the person and work of Jesus, the implications of the gospel. This is why the work of the Holy Spirit is described in such Christocentric terms, Christ-centered terms. Verses 13 to 15. Please follow along with me as I read that, 13 to 15. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
This is very important. The Holy Spirit never speaks on his own authority. He never says anything that contradicts what Jesus says and what the Word of God says, because this is God's inspired Word that the, the apostles wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God will never contradict the Word of God. The Spirit of God takes only what, is, what belongs to Jesus, because all that the Father has belongs to Jesus, and He gives it to us. The Spirit of God does not offer a second gospel. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. After you've learned that, here's the supplement for the next level Christians, the gospel of the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit does not do that. There's only one gospel. There's only one Savior. And it is the Holy Spirit's role to bring attention to Him and to glorify Him. That's why we don't sing all the time about the Holy Spirit. We have some songs that teach us about the Holy Spirit. Most songs have to do something to do with Christ or with God the Father. We don't usually pray to the Holy Spirit. We pray to God the Father in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, or through Jesus in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes this subordinate role, the support role. He reveals the Son. As J.I. Packer puts it, the Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at Him and see His glory. Listen to Him and hear His word. Go to Him and have life. Get to know Him and taste His gift of joy and peace. We can see this all throughout Scripture. All the references to the Holy Spirit in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are connected to Christ and His work. King David prophesies that Jesus is Lord, calls Him Lord in the Spirit. Those who prophesy of His birth, John the Baptist, Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is conceived from the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God descends upon him at his, at like a dove and rests with him at his baptism. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. And the Spirit helps him to proclaim justice to the Gentiles and good news to the poor. By the Spirit of God, Jesus casts out demons. And when you call what Jesus does, by the Spirit in exercising demons, the work of the devil, you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit when the Father reveals his saving knowledge to little children. And later he commissions his disciples to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises that when his disciples are persecuted, that they don't need to worry about what to say because the Holy Spirit will speak through them to teach them what to say. In the Gospel of John, we have seen the emphasis on the Holy Spirit. In the Acts of the Apostles, which we can even call the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the thesis statement is what we said in Acts 1.8. You receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit empowers us for witness about whom? Jesus Christ. And when you repent and believe and are baptized in Jesus' name, what do you receive? You receive the Holy Spirit. It's not just in the Gospels and the book of Acts. All of Scripture in Paul's letters, we see that it's the Holy Spirit who reveals Jesus to people as God's saving wisdom. He leads people, the Holy Spirit, to repentance and faith and reception of the Spirit. And this new life in the Spirit is described as the fellowship of the Spirit. Even in the book of Revelation, which we only maybe think about as prophecy of some far future, which is not the case, Apostle John, when he is in the Spirit, what does he see? He sees visions of Christ that explain the significance and implications of the gospel. By being the presence of Christ to us, the Spirit of God transforms us into the likeness of Christ and helps us to bear witness to Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's his primary role. 
the Holy Spirit is unreservedly and unabashedly Christocentric. And that's the way we should be. That's the way the church should be. And this is important because I think there's a natural human temptation, uh, a tendency to equate or conflate the work of the Holy Spirit with our own desires and our own experiences and our own practices. I think I hear this most often when it comes to trying to figure out who to date or who to marry or whom to marry or, or what job to do. Sometimes people say, well, I think, I'm, I, I think the Spirit's really leading me to be in a relationship with this person. But that person's not a believer. Well, I can tell you that the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to do that. You know why? Because the Bible says you shouldn't do that. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's just you. You want that to happen. We need to resist the temptation to equate the Holy Spirit's work and his promptings with what we want and our own experiences and practices. We also don't need to overcomplicate the decisions of our lives. If you're applying for a job and it's an immoral job that leads people into sin, say gambling, or maybe sex work in countries where that's legal, you don't need the guidance of the Holy Spirit because he's already provided the guidance in his word. And if there isn't a clear yes or no in your, in your opportunities or options, either one would honor Christ, you, you don't need to sweat that decision so much. Just pick one and go. Ask ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, is, does what I'm thinking of doing glorify Christ? Is, does it draw me into closer communion with Jesus? Because that's what the Spirit of God does. And if it does that, then you should do it because that is what the Spirit is leading you to do. This doesn't mean that the Spirit can't specifically or prophetically guide you. He does that sometimes. And you also might have noticed that I've preached a whole sermon on the Holy Spirit without saying very much about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if that's disappointing, I'm sorry. Um, I have preached on that before, and you can talk to me about it if you want to learn more about that. That's not because the gifts are not important. They are important. God commands us to eagerly desire them. I think one of our church members recently received the gift of interpretation of tongues, which I'm very excited about and grateful for because I've been praying for that. I believe in these gifts, but the reason why I didn't talk about them, it, it's, it's intentional because relative to what we have been speaking of, the spiritual gifts are peripheral to the main work of the Holy Spirit. The Corinthians, if you might remember when we were in the book of 1 Corinthians, took pride in their own spirituality. They described themselves as spiritual people. Spirit people, 1437, 1 Corinthians. And Paul himself conceded to them in 1 Corinthians 1, 7 that they are not lacking in any gift. If there's a spiritual gift that you know about, the Corinthians had it. They were abounding in these things. They were not lacking in any gift But because of their immorality and immaturity, Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 3.1, but I, brothers, could not address you as a spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Ouch, right? The self-described spiritual people. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, what does it say? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
you look at the main thrust of the Spirit's work all throughout the New Testament, it's not so that we could have spectacular gifts and perform miracles. It's to make us more like Christ, to change us, to bear witness to Christ. These gifts are just signs that point to Christ. Build up the church so we could do that better. In Matthew 7, Jesus even says that there are people at the end of, at, on the final judgment who will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? And then God will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. There will be people who cast out demons, do mighty works, and prophesy in his name that don't belong to God. So, as a church, I want us to understand that not only believe everything Scripture says, which we must do, but also believe everything Scripture says in its proper proportion. When his disciples returned to him after casting out demons and seeing the spirits fall, what did Jesus tell them in Luke 10, 20? Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's where I want our focus to be as a church. Yes, let's practice the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a biblical way. Yes. Let's be attentive to the Spirit, discerning in the Spirit, following, in, keep in step with the Spirit. But let's focus on Christ, exalt Christ, rejoice in what Christ has done to resolve to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. Because that's when the Spirit of God is most pleased. Because that's what he seeks to do, to glorify Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the precious gift of your son, Jesus Christ. He is our savior, our only hope. And thank you also for the gift, the precious gift of your Holy Spirit who reveals Christ to us, our precious Savior, who makes Christ real to our hearts so that we are assured in our heart of hearts that we are in Jesus and we have been adopted by you, our Father. We belong to you. Make us a spirit-filled church. so that we might be a Christ-glorifying church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.